This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in the United States, in New York to be precise. Um, Alex, interesting day today, really driven by the CPI number, the inflation data out of the United States, uh, which has dropped. But as the president of the United States has admitted, that drop is largely down to the fact that energy costs, gasoline prices have come down. Now, Equity markets have kind of drifted sideways. In Europe, they've been a bit stronger. The dollar's been under pressure. The Japanese yen has had a very good day. But it's all kind of centered around this idea that maybe the Fed can now downshift to a 25 basis point hikes. Well, not only that, but that, you know, is this, are we actually looking at the beginning of a soft landing? Um, I don't necessarily believe that. I'm just saying that if you take a look at the bond market, uh, for example, you saw a bit into the front end, okay, where the Fed's not going to have to hike as much. And the back end's been a little confused. At one point, you actually saw a backup in yields. That, to me, would say, okay, maybe we're going to get a better economy, I should point out now that the 10 years down four basis points. But earlier, it seemed like that soft landing narrative was evolving in the bond market. Well, you can, you can kind of see evidence for it today. If, if you take a look at the data, inflation mm-hmm. comes down. I appreciate the core inflation, which strips out uh, the stuff that we all use. Uh, I joke. Um, it is is coming down quite nicely. And the claims data, the unemployment claims data, is very, very low. Very few people in the United States, uh, relative to where we would normally be in the cycle, are claiming unemployment benefit. And as a result of which, you could argue that you've got decent levels of employment and inflation coming down. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a cracking picture. That could be the soft landing that the bond market is talking about. And the big part of it is the Fed's going to look at core X, uh, core services X housing, right? But the this thing is the that, Powell core, isn't it? What are they calling it? Something like that? Something. Um, but my thing is, well, what happens if shelter costs don't come down as much as they think? Um, or yep. when does that happen? Or when do they peak? I mean, I understand you're going to look through it, but like, did we look? Th- we looked through gas and food prices, and that still had an impact. So I, I mean, I don't know. I'm still a little skeptical. I, I think a lot of people are, and I, I was stunned. So I was absolutely stunned when the president walked out a little late. I have to admit, um, and he talks about the idea. He basically parks the whole idea that inflation was coming down at lower gasoline prices as door. And he is a hostage to fortune now because everybody we're talking to says gas prices are going sharply higher. He is long gas. He, he's now long oil and gas without any kind of hedge. Like he's like, yep. yep. It, no, there he's short. He's short. Short. I he's think short. he's short. Yeah. Flipped it. He, need, he needs it to go down. He is a naked shorting man. That is a bold call. You take credit for that. What happens if it goes south? That is not a pretty picture. Well, there's a lot of mixed metaphors. In okay. There was, yeah. wasn't it? it yeah, up, I, down, I pre- south, short, long. Yeah, I appreciated all of that. Let's talk about your favorite <laughs> subject now. Okay. Uh, and that. Oh, is it Brexit? Uh, it is. <gasps> Thank it goodness. is Brexit. I'm I should so just worried. say though that that in some ways, from a parent's point of view, some good news today. Teaching unions basically not meeting their vote threshold for a strike, though those that did vote supported the strike quite strongly. But they have to reach a kind of quorum level. They didn't do that. As a result of which, they're gonna, that, that, that makes it difficult for the teachers to, to strike. So from a parent point of view, quite good news. I suspect the teachers are feeling a little aggrieved uh, on the back of that, certainly those that voted. But Brexit is the story that maybe we want to talk about as well, because it looks as if there is the possibility that the the kind of the more pragmatic approach being taken by Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, is starting to deliver 
potentially some benefits. We could be getting close to a resolution on the issue of Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Protocol. This at, the, at this stage is kind of being driven by the idea that the EU and the UK could share data, uh, customs data, which would allow a more manageable process of kind of having one foot in and one foot uh, one foot in the EU and one foot in the UK for Northern Ireland. Now, it looks like we're going to enter the so-called sort of tunnel next week, which is where all of the kind of the Sherpas, the guys that do the guys and girls that do the heavy lifting uh, on getting these agreements done, kind of get together and they kind of they, they nail it. They think they've got everything in place. They basically are kind of getting everything done. And they think that potentially could start next week. How big a breakthrough could this be? Well, let's go to our politics team and join Ellen Milligan. Ellen, how significant could this moment be? This week has been a real turning point because on Monday, as you say, we got this joint statement, this rare joint statement between the EU and the UK saying that they'd agreed, um, the EU had agreed to use the UK's live database tracking goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. That is the bedrock for any agreement on customs, which is the one of the most practical um, problems with the protocol, definitely that the UK sees, which is this diversion of trade. Um, and an agreement now is looking far more likely mm-hmm. on customs um, because of it. And then this whole week, we've had so many meetings in Northern Ireland. We've had um, the Irish Taoiseach, um, Foreign Minister um, in Belfast. We've had um, von der Leyen and um, Irish leaders meet. We've had Keir Starmer in Northern Ireland. And we've had James Cleverley, the Foreign Secretary, and um, Chris Eaton Harris, the Northern Irish Secretary, in Northern Ireland as well. Really busy week in Belfast. And then on Monday... Mm-hmm. And then on, on Monday, we have another face-to-face meeting between James Cleverley and Maris Seskovic of the EU, um, where it, after which, as we've reported exclusively today, um, talks are going to really intensify. There's going to be a final push to get a deal over the next few weeks. Really significant. So this live database tracking goods system that the UK can now sort of lead with, what did the UK give up to get that agreement from the EU? Like, what's coming down the pipe? So the UK says that its database has been up and running since January last year. Um, the EU had a number of issues with it. There's actually um, a, a couple of issues that need to be tweaked um, with the data database as well. But talks were frozen from about February last year for eight months. And about a month after talks began in September, October time last year, uh, we revealed exclusively again that the EU had begun um, testing on this database for the very first time. So they did about two months of tests. And this database, it, it, it all sounds very dry, but it's really important. It details, it's live tracking data. It details every detail about um, products coming into the EU single market. The EU proposed um, last year an express lane, which, um, which was their proposal for a customs agreement. And it was reliant on them getting access to this database. So that's why it's so important. Ellen, is all this going to be resolved by the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement coming up in April? There is no hard deadline for this to be resolved, but this is what both sides are working towards. Um, Everyone wants the political institutions of Northern Ireland to be up and running by the time of the anniversary on April 10th. And that's contingent on getting an agreement or at least enough progress to persuade unionists in Northern Ireland to take their seats. Um, there are, although there has been progress made, although there's a lot of optimism, there's a lot of 
tricky issues to resolve and there's a lot of compromise to be had on both sides as well. Um, I talked about how customs was more in reach. We've also got these sanitary checks, which are much harder um, to get an agreement on. For example, the risk appetite of the EU is incredibly high. They need to do physical checks on agri-foods coming in to prevent disease from entering the single market. But at the same time, the UK wants checks to be reduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got the point of the European Court of Justice, which is a far more political point for the UK and their role in the EU, which they are on opposing sides on. And it's quite hard at this point to see where they, what the landing zone is with that. Yeah, and, and to that, because I mean, that, that's the red line, right? I mean, I don't see any sort of, com- I mean, h- how can you compromise a red line? Yeah, I think on the point of the ECJ, um, it would need compromise on both sides. I think the um, it is a red line for for the EU. Um, I think there might be a possibility that you could get a combination of an independent arbitration panel to resolve disputes with the ECJ having overall insight, uh, overall oversight on yep. points of EU law. But it, it's complicated. It's really complicated. Uh- it certainly is. I think uh, I think we, we've all got used to that complication, but, but don't really fully understand just how, how difficult it all is. Anyway, Ellen, as ever, thank you very much, Steve, for updating us. Uh, more on this story at the beginning of next week. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. As we all know, one of the favourite subjects here in the UK is what is happening with the housing market. It has been under pressure for a little while now, but the house builders have been under pressure even longer. The market effectively discounting the trouble that we're seeing with the rates story going higher. We've seen housing come under pressure. So names like Persimmon and Taylor Wimpy uh, are a big focus right now. Persimmon out with numbers today. The market liked what it heard. Uh, The stock up by around 8% today. Um, And Persimmon is basically sounding quite cautious. It's saying that it is going to take a cautious stance when it comes to building going forward from here. It's going to sit on some of its land banks uh, and maybe wait for prices to improve. Um, Is that going to happen? How long does that take is obviously a key question here. Tomorrow, we're going to hear from Taylor Wimpy. Now, earlier, Alex and I uh, caught up with Charlie Campbell from Liberum. He's their building materials and home builders uh, analyst. Uh, He's basically spent the, the whole of this year watching these share prices coming down very sharply. Are they about to bounce? That's the key question. He is quite positive. Let's listen to what he has to say. House builders' shares are down about 50% uh, between peak in 21 uh, and tail end of 22 coming into this year. Uh, and we thought the market basically was, was overdoing the pessimism on the outlook. Um, we think house prices will fall in 23 as a result of mortgage rates going up. Uh, we, th- we think kind of minus 5 would be about the right number. Consensus about minus 10. Um, but even if consensus is right and it is minus 10, there still be some value in the sector. We, we think that the, the stock market is discounting basically a house price fall of about 15% uh, in 23, which just seems far too much to us. Uh, valuations across the space uh, have, have improved in the last few week or so, uh, but have got back to, down to 2008 levels when uh, really a far worse recession than, than we think is likely and house builders in far worse shape balance sheet wise. What's the correlation between what happens now? Nice to see you, by the way. What happens now and what happens with the Bank of England? The market over the last few days has been downgrading expectations for how far the Bank of England is likely to go. Consensus kind of now circa around four and a half. Mm -hmm. If we get to there, 
does your does your thesis around these house builders still hold water? If we go further than that, does it start to get undermined? Yeah, um, th th thank you. So um, we, we, we did think that, that mortgage rates in the UK would come down from the very high levels that they got to in October. Uh, we've probably been a bit surprised by how, how well that's gone, actually, and already, you know, best five-year fixed rates uh, running at about 4.3. Um, I think average five-year fixes are still quite high and still maybe five, but we think it does look as if certainly the banks are competing hard with one another for volume yep. uh, and clearly in, a, in an environment where, where rate expectations soften um, and the UK is a market that does use like, like these five-year fixes, certainly moves at the long end of that curve would be very helpful for mortgage rates, helpful for consumer confidence and that, and that would help um, these sales rates improve. Uh, and therefore, kind of the, the, the path of house prices improve as well with it. That was Charlie Campbell, Librium. Is it is it Librium or Librium? Librium. 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 Mm, okay. British Materials and Home Builders Analyst speaking with us earlier on television. As Guy was mentioning, Taylor Wimpy uh, comes out tomorrow. Now, shares were up the most in two months. A lot of trading volume uh, there. So you have to wonder, Guy, how much of it's already priced in, particularly if they're not sort of managing their balance sheet as well as, say, Persimmons. But these stocks have been really beaten up. Mm hmm. The, the market definitely saw what was happening with UK housing fairly early on and downgraded a lot of these stocks. Like we haven't had rates going higher in the UK in a kind of consistent way for a very, very long time. Uh, the UK housing market um, has, like, the last two years, has seen really exceptional price gains. So it was kind of, it was primed for a drop. And we've certainly seen that priced into the, into the housing, uh, housing stocks. Do they bounce from here? I don't know. Like mm. Cost pressure still looks quite significant. Uh, you've still got, um, I think, a lot of uncertainty around where the Bank of England is going to end up. Persimmon was talking about that today. It, it basically, I think, hinges on now what happens with, with mortgage rates, which effectively hinge on what happens with the Bank of England. Well, also, my question is, who's going to be buying houses? Like, is any of this going to be affordable so people can create their new homes? Like, is, is it the first time home buyers? Like, well, so what's going to bring them back into the market? I have the same question here in the US, by the way. Yeah, I think it's a genuine threat. And Persimmon were talking about that, talking about the fact that first-time first -time buyers probably are the biggest threat right now. Um, coming into a market this, is this volatile, obviously from a sort of longer-term financial point of view, can be really tricky. Um, and I think, think first-time buyers will remain cautious for some time until we get much more clarity, yeah. certainly from the Bank of England. Anyway, this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So two things that Guy and I have in common right now and anyone in Europe is that it, it's been not that cold. It's been a little warmer than normal. The other day, it was almost 60 uh, here in New York. And natural gas prices have responded in kind. Maybe today you have uh, natural gas prices over in Europe up. But overall, we've seen a big decline. If it's warm, you get to build up storage, which then gives you a buffer if it turns cold. Is that thesis going to hold if the weather turns? Let's get more insight here with Bloomberg's European natural gas and LNG reporter, Anna Shriyavskaya. Anna, are we too optimistic that everything's going to work out fine, that storage is full enough, and that the weather's not that bad. 
Uh, at the moment, we are optimistic because, as you mentioned, storage sites are about 83% full, much fuller than normal at this time of the year, and LG keeps flowing, uh, while Chinese uh, economic uh, industrial demand hasn't uh, recovered just yet. Um, but a lot depends on how the rest of the winter uh, plays out. If we do get any cold snaps in particular, if cold snaps coincide in both Europe and Asia, that could uh, reduce the amount of LNG available for Europe and uh, make the situation more difficult. And, of course, we shouldn't forget that there is going to be much less Russian pipeline gas flowing into Europe this year uh, on an annual basis. And it will uh, still require more of additional sources to refill storage sites in the summer. I hear it's about to get colder again. How much volatility are we going to see? I'm looking at the weather forecast for next week. It's not getting very cold, but it's certainly been a lot colder. It's going to be a lot colder than it has been of late. Yeah, there'll be a, a cold snap next week. Uh, we are looking something at about like two degrees uh, below seasonal normal. But it's, at the moment, it looks like it's going to be short-lived. Uh, so, of course, it will at least uh, support prices where we are now. Uh, but at, uh, we still see a kind of a milder or uh, seasonal average uh, temperatures through the rest of January and into February. Of course, that may still change. And uh, also, we shouldn't forget that you know, prices cannot fall too much just because uh, Europe still needs that floor to make sure that LNG keeps flowing and Europe keeps winning this, uh, these cargoes against Asia. How much do you estimate that stockpiles have been low due to demand destruction or sort of policies in place from governments to reduce demand versus it actually just not being that cold? I think it's a, it's a combination of all these factors that you've mentioned. Uh, uh, demand destruction was massive last year, and Morgan Stanley already estimated that we'll see a further 16% uh, decline uh, in overall gas demand, also including power generation as well, especially if we see alternative sources such as um, uh, hydro, um, solar, and renewable solar um, and wind uh, higher than, than we saw uh, sometime at the end of last year. Uh, as well, mild weather played a role. Uh, yeah. We did see storage sites actually filled at the beginning of the year, which is very unusual. I'm hearing governments talk a lot more about the fact that, that we are seeing demand come down, that, that basically the population, that industry is taking the steps needed to, to lower demand. There seems to be this assumption that that lowering of demand is going to be permanent. Can we rely on that? If the price comes down... Are people going to turn the thermostats back up? Is industry going to fire back up the furnaces? Uh, well, at the moment, we're still, you know, having these high bills for the rest of the winter. So I don't think people will change just uh, that quickly. Um, a lot will depend on what kind of price levels we'll see through the uh, rest of the winter and into the summer and what kind of price levels we'll see going into next winter to see this behavioral change uh, actually uh, sticks at the moment. I think people are responding just because of the the price levels are still high. We are still uh, actually seeing now in our consumer bills that the spikes uh, in wholesale prices that we saw in August. Help me understand the complacency that we're at risk for. Like, how are politicians looking at this? Because I can definitely see a scenario where everyone's like, all right, we're good to go. No problem. It's going to be hard to keep up that kind of pressure and sort of the public being okay with that kind of sacrifice. 
Um, yes, indeed. Especially as 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 we all know that this this year is going to be tougher than than last year, and it can't be complacent. Uh, and I think from one part you see politicians acting, you see the governments investing money in uh, infrastructure such as uh, new LNG terminals in um, in Germany, but still you need to still uh, attract the supply. You still need to uh, to pay these high prices uh, to procure gas and there's still not enough supply available in the market. You will not see any extra additional gas until 2025, 2026. So mm. at the moment, it just means paying higher prices. In terms of kind of how companies are reacting to this, I was looking at Centrica's numbers today. This is the owner of British Gas. Profitability up by a factor of eight times. Now, what we don't know is what kind of a windfall tax that, that we are going to be seeing. When I look at that kind of profit, I'm wondering kind of how sustainable this is. And I'm wondering if we are going to see quite a lot of volatility in terms of earnings. What did you read into the Centrica numbers? I was thinking in general, um, the trading uh, profits from all of these companies, I mean, Centrica is also a big trader. They have a U.S. LNG contract lifting gas at U.S. prices, which are several times uh, lower than European gas prices, and this is how, how the market works, how the contracts work, and then selling them at higher prices in Europe. The same goes for other uh, international oil companies and, and traders. So it's fair to assume that these companies are just relying on their trading uh, profits made uh, during that high level of volatility and with extra high prices that we saw uh, last year. Mm-hmm. So that's fair to say this is what We'll, what we'll see in the earnings season. All right, Anna, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Anna Shrevskaya, thank you so much for joining us. Bloomberg European Natural Gas and LNG reporter. And, and Guy, I can appreciate the weather scenario now. Going forward, though, I feel like we're still not done with sanctions nope. on certain things when it comes out of Russia. Um, maybe and not gas-related, but product-related. What's that? So a lot of these sanctions, a lot of the uh, the impact is yet to fully be felt. Right. And, but also we get product uh, sanctions coming. Um, yeah. Not sanctions, I should say, price caps. And I appreciate that that's not gas-related or weather-related, but that's like heating fuel, it's diesel, it's distillates. I mean, that could be a huge disruptor as well, uh, particularly higher insurance, which then raises the price. It's, yeah. it's just messy. It's, it's going to be messy, and I worry that lower prices will breed complacency. Okay, that's my soapbox. Market's coming next. up next. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. We are mostly focused on trying to transition this economy to one where we have real growth that is due to productivity gains uh, and that is more widely shared by all Americans. And we welcome the news in this report, which shows that inflation has been moderating without having to give up the gains that we've made in in the labor market. The big reason is falling gas prices. My administration took action to get oil onto the market and bring down prices. Now gas is down more than $1.70 from its peak. That was President Biden uh, speaking earlier today on the inflation reading, and also Cecilia Rouse, uh, Council of Economic Advisors. And and the conversation that sort of evolved here is that President Biden came out and basically took credit uh, for the reduction in inflation because food prices have fallen, because gasoline prices have fallen. And that puts him in a dangerous spot. What happens if food prices go up? 
what happens if gasoline prices uh, go up? And then Cecilia Rouse kind of doubled down and said, look, we have some options, but things are going really well. She seems to think that there is a soft landing scenario, and that's what the market seems to be pricing in. But Guy, you and I were really shocked about the gas price situation because not everything goes down all the time and not everything goes up all the time. If there's volatility, that's going to be meaningful. So they've already kind of blown through half of the strategic petroleum reserve, which they've released a lot of to try and keep prices under control. They haven't really got much luck with the Saudis. So what levers are they going to pull if gas prices exactly. go back, gasoline prices go back up again? Gasoline prices seem to be the yardstick by which infl- Americans judge inflation. And if they're back north of 5 bucks a barrel as we go into into the summer in, into the into the uh, into the autumn of next year, this is going to be a real problem for the president. And yeah. You do wonder how he's going to manage it and what he's got left in the tank to be able to deal with it. Because everybody we're talking to, Alex, says oil prices are going up. Yeah. In the meantime, what does the Fed do? Harker was saying 25. Uh, Bullard yep. speaking recently, he sounds positive uh, about growth, but does say we got to get to 5% and hold it as fast as we can. Um, let's get more insight here. Uh, Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent, and Kriti Gupta, who covers markets for us as well. Okay, Mike, we've had time to digest the gas price situation, what Fed officials are saying. What's our biggest takeaway here? <laughs> well, the biggest takeaway is that inflation has improved a lot. I mean, when you consider where we were a year ago, uh, we're at a 6.5% uh, rate right now, 5.7% for the core. Core rate over the last three months is 3.1%. So inflation has come down a lot, and uh, the Fed has uh, made some progress. They still don't believe, for some of the reasons that you were just pointing out, that inflation has gone away and that the danger of inflation going back up again has gone away. So they want to keep the monetary policy tight. And their problem is is that the markets don't. And so they're mm-hmm. kind of working at cross-purposes here. Yep. But uh, at, at this point, the takeaway is things aren't bad, but don't expect the Fed to change the course. Okay, so the Fed's the Fed's taking a more circumspect view of, of what is happening here, Critty. But but the market, as Mike says, is is kind of all in on this idea that we're gonna see a soft landing. And to a certain extent you can understand why. You take a look at the data we've had today, you get inflation dropping, and you get the claims data, the unemployment claims data remaining stubbornly low. I This is uh, a, a US economy that is generating lots of jobs. People that want jobs can generally get jobs. The labor market is tight. And that doesn't feel like a recession. That feels like a soft landing. It does feel like a soft landing. But I think there's also kind of this narrative in the market. And this is where you, I think, have to be a little bit uh, careful and prudent about just how quickly the markets are jumping to conclusions here. Because it's not a surprise that in the first half of this year, the Fed was supposed to or expected to finish its tightening cycle. But I don't think people expected this 25 basis point hike to come that quickly. I mean, the step down in the last meeting was already considered quite controversial from 75 down to 50. And it really wasn't um, a base case scenario until a couple of days before uh, the Fed meeting. So to see yet another step down so quickly that the markets have just kind of accepted. I mean, literally within 24 hours, the Mm -hmm. probability has gone from 71% to 90% in one day of 25 basis points. The assumption here that it's not going to go back up to 50 or it's going to go from 25 to zero in the next step um, or the next meeting, that seems kind of fast to me. And I think that's something why that markets are perhaps taking with a little bit of a grain of salt because the equity market's only up six tenths of one percent. And that's mm-hmm. only as a function of the last 30 minutes. What is it weird that consensus is changing so fast? Kriti, mm-hmm. like in the market? Like, is it we're not that's weird. Yes. 
It's a little. It Can is, it be consensus <laughs> if it changes? <laughs> uh, it, it's a little weird, and I think this is where you're not seeing a, a clear message in the market reaction today because the consensus from the markets to the point of rate cuts has even been priced in both in the bond market and the equity market. But Alex, you pointed this out on Bloomberg Television earlier today that the stock market and the bond market are having two very different reactions. They are both bid today. And that speaks to this idea that they're expecting this Fed tightening cycle to end way faster than it looks like the Fed has really indicated. And that is kind of weird to answer your question. Mike, let's turn to what the president said a little earlier. He seemed to firmly focus on gas prices when it comes to inflation. And he he kind of came straight out of the gate at the beginning of his press conference today and basically said, yeah, inflation down because gas prices are down. A, is that a mistake? And B, how much how much evidence is there to support that idea? Oh, there's a lot of evidence to support that idea. Gasoline prices uh, yep. did fall significantly, and they fell into December, and they were down 9.4%, according to the Consumer Price Index. And as you mentioned, Americans get a lot of their feelings about inflation from gasoline prices. So it was a great move for the president. It's exactly what you'd expect him to do to take credit for that. And if gasoline prices go back up, and I got news for you, they have gone back up in January. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Nobody's going to remember what Biden said. Uh, you know, it's just all a, a bunch of uh, impressions that people have. Well, so he, he will take credit for things that are not his uh, his doing um, on the economy, and he will take the blame for things that are not his doing. So that's just the nature of being president. Well, and, and then to that point, Mike, and this was I was trying to make with Celia Rouse, is that there's just no more tools. Like, you can't drain even more out of the SPR, for example. The shale drillers aren't, don't have any more. They can't go to the Fed and say, please cut. The Fed's going to be afraid of the 70s. Like, there's just, the House isn't going to approve anything. There's going to be no stimulus coming down in case there's a recession. They got nothing. Yeah, there are some issues out there. Like, the, uh, I mean, the House situation is difficult if we did get into recession, although um, nothing concentrates the mind like a hanging, as as the old saying goes. So if uh, constituents are upset, the House might come around. Um, the They knew they couldn't get any more, really, out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve because um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has already agreed to sell more oil, not into the market, but because they have contracts to rotate this oil around it. And so there's going to be more oil going mm-hmm. out. That's already a controversial mm-hmm. thing with Republicans in the uh, in the House. So yep. no, there isn't as much they could do if oil prices were to shoot up. But if they were to shoot up, then the question becomes, why can the administration blame it on Russia or something like that, as opposed to the fact that they didn't yeah. uh, approve a pipeline that wouldn't have brought down prices anyway? Nevertheless, I, Americans are going to blame the president if oil prices oh, go sure. sharply higher. Um, Critty, we've got Umich uh, tomorrow. How big a focus is there going to be there on what happens with the inflation? It is, does the market believe the data it's seeing? I think it does believe the data that it's seeing. I think it's really kind of closing its eyes and hoping for something really, really good. And it kind of is getting that. I think with the UMish data, what's really important, and you've seen this with the consumer spending numbers as well, is that if you look at some of the trends, a lot of the expectation here was that the consumer confidence and the consumer spending both should have dropped. And we haven't actually seen it drop as much as expected. 
Um, all right, guys, really appreciate it. Um, and I should point out that apparel prices were up, uh, but that's because men were buying stuff. I just that's a Wait, it's men's a apparel women's prices were up. Women's were down. Women's were down. Shoes were down. I, I'm I just surprised feel like you're not out there shopping. I, uh, well, hang on, there's more conversation to this, guys. Thanks a lot, Gritty <laughs> <laughs> and Mike. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. James. Oh, you're there. You're there. You go. There. I, I feel you're more magical. You should probably do this one. <gasps> oh, my God. That was such a compliment. I'm going to cry. All right. Uh, Disney. We're talking about Disney. Um, so the basic uh, idea with Disney right now is Nelson Pels has taken the company on. Um, so the stock is actually up today. Nelson Pels wants to get on the board of directors. Uh, Disney said no thanks. And now he's kind of going after Bob Iger's comp. It could get really ugly and really interesting. So joining us now for more uh, with her take is Geetha Ranganathan of Bloomberg Intelligence. She covers media for us. Geetha, what has been, first of all, why do you think that Nelson Peltz is doing this right now? Yes, so uh, Alex, you know, he's kind of always viewed himself as this agent of change. And obviously, it's no secret that Disney has kind of really underperformed. So if you just look at their uh, one-year stock price performance, they're down about 35 36%. And so this seems to be the right time. I mean, obviously, we've had some management changes. Uh, We've seen kind of Disney come out with some pretty poor earnings report. Their their last one was a complete disaster. And so it, it seems like this is the time to kind of make some noise. What does he want? So he wants a a board seat, and Disney has obviously rejected that, so it looks like we're headed for for a proxy fight. Uh, But a lot of the things that he has leveled, I mean, in terms of the criticisms that he's leveled against Disney, I mean, these are all issues that have already been on the radar. These are issues that the company's already been working through, whether it is, you know, kind of cutting streaming losses, uh, whether it's kind of enforcing more cost discipline. These are things that are already on the uh, management's to-do list, and I think they're already executing on it. I think where it's going to get really ugly is, uh, you know, kind of his disapproval of, of Bob Iger. And while he hasn't necessarily called for Bob Iger's resignation, I, I think investors kind of suspect that that could uh, it, it could potentially happen. Uh, he hasn't necessarily been very supportive of Bob Iger's return uh, to Disney as the CEO. So it's going to be interesting to see what, what happens there, especially with you know, succession being such a contentious issue for Disney through the years. So to, to that point, um, going after Bob Iger's pay feels like akin to just going after Bob Iger's job itself. Um, do you think that just reduced pay would be enough? Like, is that really all we're talking about here? Like, the stuff that Peltz was talking about doesn't seem to be revolutionary. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's ultimately this is really coming down. This is going to come down to a vote of confidence on Bob Iger, right? It's not. So what is at stake here? It's not just the strategy of Disney. It is pretty much the legacy of Iger uh, and, and all that he has built at the company. I mean, you read through, you know, you know, Pelsa's, uh presentation and and you know he has all of these different things uh, uh where he is kind of listed out you know i i think Iger's missteps or or faults if you will uh, as he's kind of planned out the streaming strategy um again we're going to have to see you know we have to wait uh, up until disney's annual shareholder meeting in march but this absolutely i agree with you alex this is very much a word of confidence for bob Iger itself hasn't bob Iger only just come back i has he really had time to make an impact here it's really been very uh, early days. I mean, it's, he's only been here for about two months. 
But, you know, he knows the company really well. He led the company for 15 years. A lot of the things that he's kind of dealing with are changes that he himself instituted. So he very well knows what is required of him. Uh, I think the biggest thing uh, for the Disney management team as a whole is just kind of reinvigorating the whole content creation process because a lot of pieces of their content have been underperforming, have been kind of underwhelming. Uh, and I would particularly, uh, you know, point to animation, which has clearly underperformed. And that's something which, you know, which has been kind of a Bob Iger's, uh, you know, he's always had such a great vision when it comes to animation. I mean, with whether it was his acquisition of Pixar, whether it was his development of the Disney Animation Studio. So I think he's going to go back to the drawing board here, kind of see what can be done to uh, reinvigorate a lot of this IP and create new franchises. Does it matter that Nelson Peltz has like no relationship to media quickly? <laughs> I think it does. I mean, you know, yes, Disney is a consumer company, but he doesn't really have the media and entertainment expertise. So again, not sure whether his presence on the board is really relevant. It's going to be fun to watch though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Certainly entertaining uh, for us in the uh, the financial circles, maybe less. Uh, when it comes to Disney Plus. Anyway, uh, Gita, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Gita Ranganathan joining us, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Media Analyst. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Okay, it's happened. We're finally here. Fourth quarter earnings season kicks off tomorrow. You have J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citi, Wells Fargo. And on Tuesday, you have Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, or Morgan Sachs, as I called them on television. So super proud of that one. Um, let's get the preview. What to expect? There's going to be a lot to unpack with this. Uh, joining us now is Bloomberg Finance reporter Catherine Doherty. So the first thing is, what is their provision book going to look like? And are we going to be viewing that as bad or as good? So the provisions are going to look a lot different than 2021. That entire year, you saw the banks basically releasing what they had stored up uh, because that year was a year where they were evaluating and saying, hey, look, we don't actually need all of this money as protection the economy is chugging along. In fact, we were seeing record highs and M&A, and the markets were quite healthy. 2022 was a reversal of that. So then the banks started to pull back, started to build their reserves, and were expecting that the end of the year will just be more of the same. So not a release of reserves, but a building up. How bumpy is this year going to be? I, th- this is an economy that I think is is struggling at the moment. Um, we don't quite know where the Fed's going to kind of end up raising rates to. We don't quite know what's going to happen in terms of unemployment uh, and whether or not we're going to see some credit risk. I, how difficult is it to predict this year versus other years? So it depends on what you're predicting. If you're thinking about just the health of the banks, they're looking pretty good. Their profits are uh, reaching record highs. They continue to make a lot of money off of just rising interest rates in the form of net interest income. So we're expecting at the end of 2022, we'll see more of that. The banks have been taking in more money. But 2023 is the big question mark in terms of if rates start to pull back, then they won't be making the same amount of money if we're going to look at it just on a year-over-year comparison. 
And then the other thing to think about is what happens with the markets? Does M&A come back? Do investment bankers start to work on more deals? Will that bring in more money? Mm -hmm. But what is kind of needed that I've been talking to sources about is the base of certainty. Right now, the uncertainty has caused a pullback in deal making. So therefore, those business lines have, have seen a glut. But 2023, I've talked to a lot of analysts who predict that the markets could come back, but we do need some of those questions or the uncertainty to resolve. You also need the staff to be there to do that, which leads me to the um, expense ratios. Um, clearly, it's been tough going. Um, we've seen a lot about how maybe job cuts or bonus reductions could happen even in the areas that did well. What does that then do for the talent pool? It feels like these banks are going to be stuck with making sure they have the right people, but not paying them too much and being ready to go if things turn. So it is a different tale if we want to look at this year compared to last year. Even like three months ago. Even three months ago, you had employees uh, asking for more money and and jumping to, to other job opportunities because there were so many of them. Today, we're seeing the job cuts. Now, I don't want to expand. Those job cuts are not as large. We're talking 6% of Goldman Sachs uh, headcount. That's 3,000 people, so it's not nothing. But 6% is uh, still under double digits. So it's not like we're seeing major business lines and massive cuts. What we are seeing is the return to cutting that was paused during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of back to the norm. And it just means that employers seem to be in the position of strength when deciding how to reward their employees and when to hire, when to not. Um, There are some banks that are just freezing hiring and they're not hiring at the same rate that they were a year ago, not to say that they're making these massive cuts, but even the pullback in hiring is a substantial difference to what we saw a year ago. How much of this has been front run? Uh, JP Morgan bottomed out in what, October, September, October last year, kind of, let's call it circa 100. It's now trading at 140. The market's got pretty positive on the banking sector lately. So I would say that that just comes back to the the health of the banks. When you think about that sector related to, let's say, what we've been reading about in crypto or other parts of the market that just have all this uncertainty and and real problems, the banks, uh, this is, uh, a lot of analysts say that, that this, if we go into a recession, this recession will look very different than 2007, 2008, when the banks were not in a position of health. Mm-hmm. They've spent the last over a decade building their balance sheets to be protecting their investors. And they, many executives will come out and say, hey, look, we we have learned from our mistakes. We're now in a position of strength. Even if we do go into a dip in the economy where you're here for you, we want to keep serving you, and we have the balance sheet to do so. What are we going to expect from Wells? I feel like that's a an ugly stepchild. So Wells has already announced a lot of the regulatory, um, well, the fines that, that uh, have come out in really the, the recent weeks, um, if not months. So I think analysts have already baked that into their predictions. Um, And recently, I think it was as of this week, they talked about their pullback in the mortgage business. So I think that'll be a main focus on the analyst call tomorrow. Um, And in general, with Wells, with Citi, all the banks that are reporting on Friday are the large consumer banks. So 
we're going to be listening for executives predictions in 2023 about the health of the consumer are they spending um what do mortgage uh what do the the mortgage rates um how are they factoring into the amount of money or business that they're either losing or or growing um it, it really depends and there we're also going to be looking at credit card spend and and other metrics that might point to the health of the economy to to kick off 2023. All right. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate that update. We look forward to all the analysis tomorrow as well. Catherine Doherty, Bloomberg finance reporter, joining us. Um, I finally feel like we're here, Guy. Finally, we're going to get a read on fourth quarter. But more importantly, what this year is going to wind up looking like. You know, it feels like consensus is rocky first half, better second half. Are companies going to be reflecting that? Uh, we are about to find out. You guys get Monday off, which is why we get the gap, isn't it? So we've got banks tomorrow, banks on Tuesday. I'll be here on Monday. Mm-hmm. Just saying. I'm not. Alex is going to be out Bye-bye. shopping. Or skiing, I hear. I don't ski. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>